Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Initiating system one. System one loaded. Step right up and prepare to be unsettled. You have left behind your safe reality and fallen into darkness. <laughs> there is no escape. 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 Warning. Warning. Welcome to the Simply Scary Podcast Season 4. Error. Corrupted database detected. Access denied. One of the files in the registry database must be recovered by use of an alternate copy. Commencing recovery procedure. Do not turn off your device. The recovery was successful. Now loading Simply Scary Podcast. Begin transmission. Jason. Where in God's name are we? You said we were almost to the crypt 20 minutes ago. I'm getting too old for this ghost chasing nonsense. No, no, it's here, man. I promise. It's just around the corner. I'm sure of it. It'll be worth it, Otis. You'll see. And once we get the talisman. The talisman? 
I'll believe that when I see it. <sighs> For all you and I both know, those legends are nothing but old wives' tales. And that crypt is as empty as my pockets are. I'm taking the trip all the way out to the middle of nowhere with you. Just trust me, all right? I know what I'm doing. Once we get our hands on that amulet, we can have anything we want. You'll be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. And young again. Immortal, even. If you want. And I. <laughs> well, I'll be remembered forever as the... Living forever? <laughs> if you'd seen half the things I've seen, kid, you'd wish you were dead, not immortal. Trust me. It ain't pretty watching everything and everyone else around you die and forget about you over 60 years. You think I want to live another, what, thousand? <laughs> uh, you mind telling me who gave you that map of yours anyway? And how you know this crypt is even here? And that this isn't some kind of trap or something. I told you before I don't know his name. He came to me saying he was an author and wanted me to perform one of his stories on Horror Hill. But the whole thing was in Latin. When I translated it, it wasn't a story at all. It was... an invitation. All right, all right, I get it. So, Mystery Man sends you on this goose chase for some magic pendant or something. And it's supposed to make everything right in the world again. And you're going to use it only for good, yada, yada, yada. What's it going to cost you, Jason? You get unfathomable power, the fountain of youth, women, fame. Maybe get to save the world. What's the price? I got a bad feeling about this. There's no price, Jiry. Just the footsteps it took to get here. My source told me things that no one else could possibly have known. He was inside the castle when it happened, man. He witnessed the takeover and the aftermath. I'm convinced the guy is legit. And once we lift the amulet from Danielson's corpse, there is no stopping us. I have an obsession with nitpicking details in films and television. I can't control it or ignore it, and it's so ingrained in me as to fully spoil all attempts to be a passive viewer. I see when an actor jumps three feet to the left in a cut shot, a hand switches to a different position breaking the fluidity, an item vanishes, etc. And it drives me crazy each and every time. As I watched the news a few nights ago, I saw a continuity error that made absolutely no sense, and that's how this whole nightmare began. It was the local cheesy daily news as usual, a vague and neutral delve into politics and some local crime stories to keep you consuming and afraid, 
A fluff story about a child's last wish to donate all their charity money to rescuing puppies, yada yada yada. The final middle finger salute at the end of the broadcast is what caught my eye when it came earlier than expected. The reporter shuffled papers that then simply vanished. It was so subtle, I knew something was off at first without realizing exactly what. They were gone off the table altogether, and I knew immediately this was a poorly seamed together jump cut. Something had been removed. The clock read 10.22, eight minutes early, confirming a segment had been completely cut out. DVR is my co-pilot, and I rewound and played that final segment back dozens of times. I saw the wide-eyed stare caught in the last frame before the cut. I saw the terror on the newscaster's face in that one sloppily edited frame. I saw the subtle difference in the hair, in the way the blazer hung misaligned on his shoulders. It didn't match at all. As I scrubbed back and forth, I finally noticed the reflection in his shiny black mug of likely spiked coffee. A reflection of something white, getting larger, getting closer to him before the cut. I have an obsession. I scour the IMDB profiles of nearly everyone I watch. You can call me a stalker, a geek, a freak, I don't care. It's my obsession that helped me dig through names, numbers, and addresses to track the locally residing newscaster in his large suburban abode. I was able to find his number from a simple deduction in the yellow pages. When I called it, it went straight to voicemail. The next day I decided to find out what had happened, and I drove to his fenced-in, custom-built brick-and-stone home. His wife was on the phone, tears sweeping down trails of eyeliner. She was visibly distraught. Her husband, the newscaster, clearly wasn't home, so last night I did what any obsessed person is liable to do. I drove to the station. There was no way to expect what I found no matter how attentive to detail I'd been. The station building was in the heart of the city, so it was nearly 40 minutes of nighttime driving. I parked in the garage and immediately recognized his car. I have an extremely obsessive personality, so I knew it was his. That shiny S-Class Mercedes he'd slipped a quip in about years back when referencing a Bond movie, shimmering in the fluorescent flicker was unmistakable. He'd never left the building. I walked to the elevator, pressed the number I'd researched earlier, and soon arrived to the floor, to those pale overhead lights in the empty hallway leading to the slightly ajar glass door to the network studio. The smell of death is unmistakable, a choking stench that painfully enters your lungs, forcing you to cough at the noxiousness of putrid bodily gases. The smell was unbearable as I entered and I needed to remove my jacket and press it hard against my nose to filter out the horrible odor. I saw multiple bodies, decaying, and beyond facial recognition, screaming teeth and bruising skin rotting off of the skulls and the hands. There were dozens. I recognized a few by their clothing, some newscasters, some reporters, the weatherman, an oozing and maggot-filled face under that unmistakably perfect television hair. Only one light was on, and I followed it stealthily back to the editing room. 
The man at the computer looked almost skeletal from starvation, but alive. He'd been malnourished and emaciated to the point his body had begun eating its protein. The hollow of his cheeks sunk inward below wild, wide eyes that twitched in pure terror as he worked deep into the night. His tears streamed and snot dripped down to a horrible grimace, and he appeared to have been working non-stop for days from the look of his thick, purple eyelids swollen and wet. The scrubbed timeline in his edit played audio back as he perfectly patched together sound bites, apparently to create tomorrow's news content covering the day's events. I then noticed the thin, bony white hand with two few fingers reached the back of his head, and finally I saw it. It was a slim figure with soggy white skin that hung on its frame like wet paper towels on silverware. The face was hideous. Far too much of its black gums were exposed in that sagging, wide mouth under those hollow-looking pits of eyes. Its tiny nubs of teeth jutted outward from the black chasm of a mouth at a harsh angle. It was almost human, but so clearly not. I watched as its arm slowly extended to the back of the editor's head, removing small chunks of red flesh from the skull before retracting the arm and feeding the bits into its ghastly black mouth. I stared in horror. Then, noticing the screen behind that thing, realizing why the news broadcast jumped when it had. The story segment removed was frozen on a flat screen monitor at the editing table. It was a freeze frame of that field reporter whose decayed body now lay oozing out on the newsroom floor, standing on the roof, under a disc, in the sky. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. If this scribe of yours is so powerful and all-knowing, how come he's not walking 13 miles in the dark and digging up bodies? What's his angle, anyways? He has his reasons. <sighs> Otis. Otis, look. There. There it is. The crypt. Right there, up ahead. Oh, the scribe was right. It is real. 
I knew it was real. <laughs> oh, oh, right where he said it would be. <laughs> what did I tell you, old man? <laughs> what did I tell you? Oh. Come on, man. What are you waiting for? Slow down. My knees ain't what they used to be. Now, where's that damned incantation? Aha! Gotcha. <clears throat> go through with this. Of course I'm sure. I've never been so sure of anything in my life. Okay, okay. Don't bite my head off. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Just along for the ride. Ain't like I got anything to lose at my age. What's the alternative, Jiry? We just sit back and watch the world fall apart? The sociopaths in charge of the Simply Scary podcast had no idea what they were really extracting. They let the ghost out of the machine and into the real world with all of us. And that's what they get for putting a dummy in charge. <laughs> and where'd everyone go after they opened the gates to hell, Jiry? They went into hiding for nine months. Nine months. And they had no intention of making things right. Meanwhile, the virus spreads. Hey, hey, now, calm down, son. I'm not sure I like where this is going. Oh, I know where it's going, Otis. And when I'm finished with GM Danielson, he'll be as dead as a doornail. I'll do what he and his carnival sideshow never could. And what's that, exactly? Make the darkness answer to me. say. Let's get on with it. It's past my bedtime. <laughs> uh, I like you, Jerry. You're like the sick, twisted grandfather I never had. I get that a lot. I've, um, made the horrible mistake of falling in love with someone who doesn't exist. And, uh, it hurts like you wouldn't believe. Let me tell you a little about her. She's dark. Not sad or angry or angsty, but dark in a spiritual way. Like the tranquility of a midnight mist 
she dresses in all black. Her hair, her lipstick, her nails, but it does nothing to conceal the radiance of her beauty. She thinks so loudly that you can almost feel it echo through the silence. And when she speaks, there's such deliberate measure in her voice that her words turn into music. The simplest phrase containing all the secrets of the world, if only you listen close enough. I fell in love with an idea long before I met my wife, Sarah. When I saw Sarah for the first time, the fishnets, the black lace, the metal piercings, I told myself that this is what I've been looking for since before I even knew I was looking. And all the time we dated, I was looking at Sarah, but seeing that dream of what love should be. And when we were married, I told myself that it was my fault for being unhappy, because she was everything I could ever want. I'm, I'm not saying I was right to cheat on her. I'm just saying it happened, only one month after the wedding. A stupid mistake at first, but every time I did it, I felt a little less guilty than the last. I couldn't just abandon Sarah, not after the wedding, not with her family always inviting us out to places, not with our lives so tangled up together. She'd tell me these horrible confessions about how she used to hurt herself when she was little and how she'd even thought about suicide before she found me. If I left her and, and something were to happen, I, I don't know how I'd ever forgive myself. The worst part about it was, Sarah knew I was cheating. I'd tell her that I had to go to a conference for work over the weekend and she'd press her lips together and force a smile, like she had no right to ask questions, like she deserved to suffer. She made it so easy that I just kept getting lazier with my lies. Out with friends, I text her, not bothering to say with who or when I'd be back. Staying out late, don't wait up. And I wouldn't be home until morning, if that was even my home. I wasn't happy, but I didn't notice so much while I was distracted with the perverse thrill of being in control like that. I was my own master, and Sarah was, well, whatever I told her to be. I don't know how long it could have gone on like that, but I knew something had to change when she finally worked up the courage to ask me face to face. Are you with any other women? I'm sorry I have to ask, it's just my insecurity talking, I just want to hear you say- Of course not. Just you, baby, forever and ever. I almost told her the truth. But her standing there, wringing her hands, hearing the catch in her voice, as she forced the words out, I just couldn't do that to her. It wasn't cowardice that made me lie. It wasn't love either. It was pity. Her dark eyes fixed on me, sparkling with curious intensity. There it was again, that tight-lipped smile. And something more this time. The smile was quivering at the corners, like two little skin stretched over too much space. Say it again. I want to hear it. 
You're the only one for me. I was getting more than a little uncomfortable. It wasn't just the situation either. There was a sharp sting like a needle in my palm. I rubbed the spot without looking. Again, tell me that you'd never lie to me. Never, I promise. My hand was hurting worse than ever. She glanced at it, and I followed her gaze. A trickle of blood snuck through my closed fingers. There was a gaping wound like I had grabbed the blade of a knife. Again. What's going on? How did this happen? Again! She was shouting now, all pretenses of her smile gone. Tell me that you love me! I love you! I rushed to the kitchen sink to wash the wound. And then I screamed. The wound was growing before my eyes, the skin savagely stretched as though invisible hands were digging their fingers into the hole. It was halfway up my forearm by the time I got it under the faucet, and it was growing by the second. Again! What did you do to me? Paper towels were soaked in an instant. My fingers kept slipping as I tied the kitchen towel around my arm. Just what I asked it to do. Her voice was silk, strained to breaking. I asked it to stop us from lying to each other. Make it stop! The blood kept coming. I can't. That's up to you. Fine. I lied. Are you happy? I didn't turn around from the sink. I couldn't look at her right then. There have been three others. One before the wedding, two after. They didn't mean anything. Why does it keep bleeding? Telling the truth doesn't heal the lie. Now tell me that you love me. I had to turn around now just to see if it was really Sarah who was doing this to me, or whether some unknown specter had replaced her. It was her, all right. I wanted to yell in her face for what she was doing to me and steal her triumph. It wasn't triumph that I saw, though. Her face was twisted into the pit of despair. All the wind left my lungs in an instant, and we just stared at each other for a long time. Me clutching my throbbing arm, her not pretending to hide her tears anymore. I'm, I'm sorry. I want to, but I don't love you. She wasn't looking at my face when I said it. She pulled the towel away from my arm and we stared at the wound together. It was deep, all the way to the bone and still bubbling with fresh blood. It wasn't growing anymore, though. I wasn't lying this time. It's okay. Thank you for being honest. After all this, I don't think I love you either. My wound hurt like hell. But it was nothing. Like watching the bloody cut appear just above her eye. She must have felt it. I don't know what she was trying to prove when she kept talking. I never loved you. It was just my family. Always worried about me, always pressuring me to find someone. I would have been happier alone, trust me. The wound was growing by the second. Down her face, her neck, blood dyeing her black shirt even darker. Sarah, please, you don't have to do this. How could I love you? You're disgusting, you're an animal. I never want to see you again. The words were coming slower. She was coercing them out, grunting through the pain. I pressed my hand over her mouth, but she grabbed my arm right where the wound was, and I had to let go. 
I wasn't happy with you. I didn't want to grow old with you. I'm honestly relieved. She was running from me. I couldn't stop her from talking. I was weak and dizzy from my own wound, and I kept sliding on the bloody trail which followed her wherever she went. I never want to see you again! That one caused her body to surge as though struck by lightning. Her fingers helplessly nodded the empty air while her spine arched so far back that she was looking at the ceiling. Stop doing this to her! Whoever made this deal, that's enough! It's over! Stop hurting her! It wasn't exactly a voice, she answered. More like a dormant instinct which has existed my whole life. But only now reared to life. I'm not the one hurting her. You are. So I left. I stopped chasing her. Stopped trying to fix her. Stopped pitying her. I just grabbed my keys and left. I didn't speak to her over the next few weeks. Her family told me when she wasn't around, giving me the chance to clear out all my stuff without bumping into her. I asked them how she was doing, but never got an answer more clear than, she'll survive. The wound on my arm? It healed a long time ago. Not all at once, but every day the scab was a little thicker, until it fell off. And then every day the scar was a little lighter, until it was barely visible. I don't know if it'll be there for the rest of my life but I don't think about it when I'm falling asleep anymore. I'm just back to dreaming of the girl I love who doesn't exist, wondering if she'll notice the scar when we finally meet. <clears throat> no interrupting, remember? It'll ruin everything. Don't you worry about me. I'm just going to go take a seat over here in his grave and think happy thoughts. Ian wa precipio tibi. Aperte at novum dominum. Ne furta ne manient clauses et te ipsum mihi revelare. <laughs> Carpe vocum tuum et imperium, et ita quad placet, et ponunt omne mortale poteste manus mea, ut non possum vivare in eternium, et infinitum, illud imperium excere. Conserva me spiritum meum eustum. Est ut possidiat et disperadis, inimicus exactimisse, officientia. <laughs> it's finished. Time to beat our destiny, Otis. Holy hell, it worked. I can't believe it worked. What did you just read? That's none of your business, Jairi. Let's go. We don't have much time. Whatever you say. Lead the way, kid.
my dad built his dream cabin in the southern Ozarks back in 1991, a reward to himself for achieving early retirement. The damn thing took nearly a year to build, what with the county having to actually build the road to my family's property at the top of a small mountain. I was 14 at the time, and yes, we were wealthy. But the cabin didn't reflect that. It was simple, unlike most of the monstrosities you see in places like Aspen these days. And at that age, I was ruined into thinking that I'd rather live in a city where I'd have an easier time being spoiled rotten. I despised being there, to say the least. We moved into the cabin midwinter, a couple weeks before Christmas. Everyone was excited, except me, to be moving in to enjoy Christmas morning in front of the big-ass fireplace my dad gloated over. Amelia, my little sister, was six at the time, and she was elated that Santa would have such an easy entry point. Our old house didn't even have a chimney. Looking back, the first day was an omen, but there was no way we could have known. We pulled up to the cabin at around noon on December 12th, my sister playing Kirby's Dreamland on her Game Boy, and me listening to Nirvana on my Walkman. Again, I was not excited. Mom and Dad were chipper as usual, and it was grating on my nerves. My dad wouldn't shut up about how he'd had the fireplace hooked into the central system so that all the heat would be distributed evenly throughout the house. We all began unloading what we had in the back of the Bronco, everything else having been moved in at great expense a few days before. My father's annoyingly happy face drooped into a mild frown when he shouldered open the front door. Looks like the movers didn't care too much about the new carpet. There in the living room, starting where the wood floors ended from the foyer, was a trail of footprints in the carpet, apparently made with soot, leading from just in front of the entry to the fireplace to the back door. I snorted at my father's comment, which earned me a side-eye for the ages from my mom. We sat down what we were carrying in our respective rooms, and of course, I was tasked with cleaning up the mess while my dad called the moving company to complain. Whilst I was scrubbing and fuming, it occurred to me that if the footprints were in fact soot, that it would be hard to explain why the fireplace had already been used in a brand new cabin. At the time, I assumed that there had to have been a test run by the builder to ensure everything was in working order. It took me about an hour to bring the carpet to my parents' satisfaction, and then I promptly went to my new room to continue wallowing in my teenaged angst. That night, I couldn't shake the feeling that I was being watched in the shower, that someone was standing just on the other side of the curtain. I tried to ignore it, but the feeling worsened when I closed my eyes to wash my hair and face. Finally, I pulled back the curtain, feeling foolish for being such a wimp. Of course, I found nothing unusual. I wrote my paranoia off as just being pissed off from the move and didn't think much of it. I didn't have another strange encounter for several days, but about a week after I got the shower stalker vibe, Amelia let my mom and I know about her new friend at the breakfast table. How did everyone sleep last night? Fine. I played with the man behind the curtains! I told him that he would be in big trouble if he kept getting the rug dirty. Oh, that's wonderful, honey. I'm glad you've made a friend. Tell them I said thank you for not getting any more stains on the carpet. It made me bitter listening to my mom placate my sister while I was in social isolation. Mom just kept sipping her coffee and reading the newspaper that Dad had paid extra to have delivered out that far in the wilderness. There was no fear in my sister's voice, and neither of us even remotely considered the possibility that her new friend was anything more than imaginary. 
Later that day, I was taking some folded laundry to my sister's room. I put it in her drawer, turned to walk out, and I saw them. Two charcoal shoe prints under the window curtain, as if someone had been hiding there. Initially, I disregarded them as left over from the moving crew, just like the others. I ignored them. Let Mom clean them up, I thought to myself. But it kept nagging at me. I'd helped Amelia get settled into her room. I would have noticed them. They weren't there before. I still don't know why, but I never told my parents about them. I ultimately did go back to clean them up and carried on. Amelia surely had made them somehow as a part of her relationship with her new friend. That night, December 23rd, I had trouble sleeping. The feeling that I was being watched had returned shortly after the discovery in Amelia's room, and I hadn't been able to shake it. I hadn't admitted it to myself yet, but a microscopic part of my imagination had begun to suspect something amiss. At 14, I still hadn't quite squashed my fear of ghosts. I kept looking across the room, into the back of my open closet, half expecting someone to be standing there, their shoes covered in black dust. I felt shame for being scared, but finally I drifted off sometime around midnight. I still can't remember what woke me. I just know that my sheets were damp with sweat when I came to. I felt again that I was being watched, and I began scanning the dark room through my blurry, just-waking-up vision. I followed my curtains down to the floor and saw them, soiled black feet poking out from beneath them. I jumped a bit, then rubbed my eyes and looked back. There were no shoes, but the curtain was moving ever so slightly. I looked at my closet door, which had been shut without a sound. Cowering, I pulled my blankets over my head, knowing that if I pulled them down, something would be there, sitting at the end of my bed. After a while, I tried to sleep, but couldn't. Of course, I was blamed the next day for the dirty tracks to and from my room. They began and ended in front of our fireplace, just like the first time, but they clearly led to my bedroom closet and back. My parents gave me a big speech about how I needed to accept my new circumstances and start treating everyone and everything with a lot more respect. I didn't have the energy to fight with them. All I could think about were the footprints and the thing that had spent the night with me. I just rolled my eyes and accepted my punishment. Clean up the prints and then no Walkman until I straightened up. It wasn't like they'd believe me, so why say anything? I scrubbed the carpets that day in a daze. Remembering what Amelia had said a few days before at breakfast, my thoughts raced for rational explanations, but I kept arriving at the strange amalgamations of ghosts and Santa Claus. Despite everything going on, I still had Christmas morning on my mind, just like anyone that age. Yet, by the time I had finished cleaning, I had resigned myself to try and sort out what was going on. I would start with my sister. That night, after an almost silent dinner, I went to Amelia's room to do some gentle prying. As I rounded the doorframe, I found her staring up at the ceiling vent. The floor around her was covered in that morning's newspaper. What's all this for? I tried to remain calm despite already knowing the answer. You're the man that likes to hide in the curtains. I told him I would keep the floor clean. He doesn't like leaving tracks because he's afraid I'll have to leave if Mommy and Daddy find out about him. He said that if I did that for him, he'd take me to visit his house. He says there are lots of other kids there I could play with. 
all of this she said as a matter of fact, as if she and the man had been friends for years and I should know these things. I almost lost what little cool I had left, my eyes widening and my mouth opening to scorn her for being so naive, but I caught myself, resolving to try and solve the mystery on my own without shaming a six-year-old. As appalling as it was, I decided to use my sister as bait, to catch whoever, whatever, was leaving the damn footprints in the carpet and possibly planning a kidnapping. Okay. Just make sure you tell Mom and Dad that all the newspaper is for watercolors or something. That way they don't get suspicious. <laughs> I will. Thank God Amelia was six and didn't need a lot of explanation. I left her room with terrified curiosity, wondering what Christmas Eve would have in store. For what seemed like the hundredth time, I lay in bed, unable to fall asleep. I watched my clock tick for seconds, minutes, hours. I knew that should anything actually arrive in Amelia's room, I'd hear the crumpling of paper. I also knew that Amelia would be awake, desperate not only for her new friend to come out, but also for the sound of sleigh bells. Just as I began to drift sometime around one in the morning, I heard it. The sound of rustling newspaper. I hoisted myself out of the twilight I was in and ejected myself from bed, too stricken with urgency to consider being quiet. I landed on my floor with a thud and immediately heard my sister whine from across the hall. No, please don't go. No, come back. I raced out of my bedroom, older sibling protective instincts at full tilt, and into the hallway just in time to be stopped in my tracks. A tall, willowy silhouette stood at the living room end of the hallway. The thing, man, stood so tall that it stooped, bending at the ceiling, using its long, spindly arms to brace against the walls. The lunar glow coming in through the skylight was just enough to show me that it was uniformly pale, almost paper white, and without clothes. I stared up at what I thought should be its face, its lack of features slightly disorienting. It had two indentations where there should have been eyes, as if there were once sockets, but skin had been stretched over them. I thought I saw a small slit that must have been a mouth. I began to notice that its body seemed thin, almost two-dimensional when it moved. I gasped as it moved with unnatural motion, as if its joints were the result of being creased and folded into a box, using its abnormally gangly arms to balance on the floor and lurch into the living room. For a moment, I considered just going back to my room, but I'd come too far. I summoned what little courage I had and edged towards the living room, peeking around the corner of the hallway's end. In the moonlight, I followed the trail of grayish footprints with my eyes up to the fireplace, where the twin doors in the hearth stood open. I caught a glimpse of a limb being retracted into the chimney. I just stared, not being able to move not daring to breathe too loudly or deeply, lest it come back for me. Amelia broke me from the trance. Don't hurt him. I spun around, startled, my heart thumping in my chest. We locked eyes for a moment, me not believing what I'd seen, Amelia not comprehending why I seemed so disheveled. Finally, I found words. Go back to bed, Amelia. No, he won't hurt you, he won't. She started to tear up. I kept finding myself unable to speak, as if this thing in our fireplace had stolen my vocabulary. I just kept standing there, watching Amelia weep as if I was taking away a new puppy. 
In my head, I was sprinting, trying to weigh out the options. I took Amelia by the hand and went to the hallway closet for my dad's mag light. I crept back to the fireplace, Amelia mercifully not fighting my grip. I sat for a moment. Amelia, if anything happens to me when I look up the chimney, you run and wake up mom and dad. Do you understand? Amelia nodded. I took a deep breath and leaned back into the fireplace as I turned on the flashlight and looked up. A sheet-white face met mine, the creature hanging upside down and craning its neck to face me. There were no eyes but a round black hole for a mouth, gaping to reveal a seemingly bottomless oblivion. I scrambled out of the hearth and collapsed there on the floor, waiting for it to come out after me as my chest heaved, but it never did. At some point, I got up, ignoring my sister's questions and pleading, as a numb, thoughtless state came over me. I took the fireplace matches, doused the carpet in lighter fluid from a kitchen cabinet, and set the carpet ablaze. That place be damned. Amelia and I never told our parents what happened, and I can't remember much from what happened in the immediate aftermath. After hundreds of hours of therapy, the only thing I can retrieve after looking up the chimney that horrifying Christmas morning is sitting out in the snow with my family, pulling my knees to my chest as we waited for the fire department from a distant town, Amelia wailing about her friend burning alive. By the time the fire trucks got there, the cabin had burned to the ground. None of the firemen even bothered turning on their hoses. The therapists tell my parents that I've got repressed memories as a result of being so miserably sequestered from society at a time when social development is paramount. What a bunch of bullshit. Amelia wouldn't talk to me for a long time because, from her perspective, I'd murdered her friend. A few years later, she began to comprehend. We talked, we reconciled, and we agreed to never speak of it. The fire was attributed to a likely electrical problem within the system that distributed the heat from the fireplace. I guess small-town forensic scientists don't know what accelerants look like. My parents never quite understood why Amelia was convinced that I caused the fire when the fire department said otherwise. It strained us for a while, but eventually I guess they just let it go as Amelia's vivid imagination. The day after, we were allowed to sift through the smoldering rubble to try and salvage anything we could. All that we found were a set of footprints that led into the woods and then didn't return to the house. We followed them, but eventually they disappeared abruptly. My parents don't know who they could have possibly belonged to, but... Amelia and I do. Apparently the undead can have anything they want, but can't afford a decent housekeeper. It's this way. Follow me. <gasps> there it is. <laughs> the resting place of G.M. Danielson. The map was right. Well, I'll be damned. That can be arranged. What was that? Nothing. Here, help me remove the lid. All right, all right. 
But exercise wasn't part of the deal, Jason. <laughs> On three. One. Two. Three. And push. Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't you mean ours, kid? No. No, I don't. Goodbye, Otis. Now, hold on a second. What in the ever-loving f- Ow! You son of a bitch! You'll never get away with this. False. Everyone knows no one can serve two masters, you old fool. And in a moment, this ambulance only master will be me. Now that there's nothing left in my way... <laughs> Hello, GM. Having a nice nap, are we? I don't suppose you'll mind much if I take... This. <sighs> <laughs> Come to daddy. <laughs> This is GM Danielson, thanking you for being a part of our little experiment. Become a patron today, and you will have access to an extended broadcast of this show, featuring stories not included in the public YouTube release. Go to simplyscarypodcast.com and click on Patrons at the top of the page to take the tour and to get access to all our content and unreleased material that you will find nowhere else. We extend our invitation to join us next time, but don't expect typical Hollywood flair, for we will take you to hell and back with our syndication of sinfully fun frights, and it will be a ticket well worth the price of your soul. So as the tense music rolls and your lights suddenly go out, be ready for the jump scare 
for you are just experiencing the Simply Scary Podcast. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.